0: In this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, I'm speaking to Hannah Bose from Durham University and Bianca Philiborn from the University of Melbourne. They're guest editors of a special issue of the Journal of Gender-Based Violence, published by Policy Press, on space, place, and gender-based violence. Now included in the UN Sustainable Goals Agenda and marked by the UN's International Day of the Elimination of Violence Against Women, issues around gender-based violence are rightly coming to the fore more and more, and the focus on space and place this special issue gives offers further ways to frame them. Hi, Hannah and Bianca. Thank Hi. you for speaking to me today. Uh, to give some context to start with, um, please can you tell us about the journal and what we mean by gender-based violence?
1: So, um, what we mean by gender-based violence is um, violence that occurs um, where there is a gendered um, element or gendered framework to that violence. So it can be distinguished from other types of routine violence that we might um, typically see occurring. Say, for example, um, we know that a lot of violence happens um, between men linked to the nighttime economy. We know that violence might happen in relation to um types of criminal activity, it might happen um, in relation to being members of um, gangs, those sorts of of types of crime and violence that we commonly see should be distinguished between uh, with uh, gender-based violence which typically tends to occur between but not exclusively um, men and women with men as the perpetrators and women um, as disproportionately as victims of that male violence. And the reason that it's distinguished is because the the causes and the risk factors must be seen in more of a kind of a structural way. Um, so it's not a, an individual. Issue. It's not a problem between an individual man and individual woman, as an example, so, although, as I said, that's not the only context that can occur. Um, but actually, it's those broader gender inequalities, uh, those structural inequalities that women face that have contributed to, um, condoned and facilitated male violence against them. And that typically manifests as domestic violence, which we um Typically, see happening in the home, although again, not always, um, and other types of violence and abuse that may occur in public and private spaces. Um, so, sexual violence, uh, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, honour-based violence, um, and other types of violence against women in other conditions and circumstances.
2: Yeah, and I guess I'd just add to that that we could also understand gender-based violence as violence that all. Um, perpetuates gendered inequalities and um, gendered um, stereotypes or ideas about what it it means to be a man or a woman. So there's kind of a a mutual relationship, I guess, between those um, broader structural factors that Hannah was talking about um, and um, the violence itself. They kind of mutually reinforce each other um, in in lots of different respects. Um, I think as well, it's increasingly important If not essential, to be looking at gender based violence through an intersectional lens um, as well. And that's certainly something that we advocate really strongly for in our um, special issue. Um, So we can't really speak coherently of, you know, men or or women as these homogenous categories, you know, what it means to be a woman and the ways in which women might experience different types of of violence and harm is also uh, informed by things like race, like disability, um, sexuality, being gender gender diverse um, and, and so forth.
0: So, I mean, you explain this in the editorial of the special issue, which we'll put a link to in the info. But this special issue has been brought together to get us and keep us thinking about the spatial and geographical aspects of gender based violence. Why is this important?
1: So traditionally, we the focus of most research on gender based violence has been preoccupied with violence that's happened in private spaces and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but one of the kind of biggest ones, I guess, is that the second wave uh, women's movement really drew attention to violence that happens in the home because that was one of the most hidden forms of, of violence. And it was, you know, therefore a focus of the, the movement to really draw attention to it. And a lot of studies are therefore focused on documenting how prevalent domestic violence is um, the risk factors, uh, you know, and the uh, the sort of patterns and trends that we see uh, nationally and internationally. The problem with that narrow focus, though, is that it has tended to ignore other types of violences that happen in other spaces. Um, so that we know, for example, that sexual harassment is very common, but it hasn't been discussed in the same to the same extent historically as more. Um, it's legally serious, I guess you would say, forms of sexual violence and abuse, again, often happening within the home or occasionally um, in other circumstances. And so um, the problems that we have at the moment is that, first of all, we have some forms of violence and abuse that simply haven't been looked at in the same ways or to the same extent because they don't occur in the private s- uh, sphere. Um, but linked to that, there has been, um, although there has been a focus on violence that's happened within private spaces, the actual space itself hasn't been the primary focus of that work. Um, so it's been on the types of abuse that are but not how space might contribute to those or how, um, how we might understand the role that space plays in terms of uh, experiences of violence and abuse, but also opportunities for um, perpetrating it and also for intervention.
2: And I think we can see spaces playing quite a, a multifaceted role in terms of how violence unfolds. So the actual material and physical um, features of a particular space can um, lend themselves towards particular types of, of violence occurring or create particular opportunities for violence to unfold. Um, but spaces Uh, themselves also have, um, you know, spaces are socially and culturally produced. So they have a a meaning that is is produced by the people that are in those spaces and, um, you know, the the actions and the things that we do within particular spaces. So that um, discursive production of space also plays a role in shaping how we understand um, violence in in different locations. Um, So just to give an example, to make that a little bit more concrete, um, some of my own workers looked at sexual violence in licensed venues like nightclubs and, and pubs. And um, in, you know, in the research that I've done, a lot of people, Really, just expected that they would experience some level of sexual harassment, um, if not sexual assault, within those spaces, Mm -hmm. because they're um, constructed as spaces where you might go to pick up and to flirt or to engage in some type of sexual interaction. Um, So, having someone, you know, feel you up as you walk past was just explained as being a normal part of of being within um, that space.
0: Thank you. Uh, We'll talk more about these at public spaces and sexual harassment later on, but going back to private spaces, I think coronavirus and lockdown has kind of really exaggerated the importance of talking about these. We know it's dramatically compounded domestic violence, and we especially historically have viewed violence um, in private spaces such as the home as quite different from that in public places. What's been the impact of this?
1: I mean, it was interesting, wasn't it, that when lockdown happened, certainly in um, the UK, the home was being constructed as a safe space. So it was somewhere that you should stay in order to avoid getting the virus. And, you know, home was kind of put on this, um, you know, kind of pedestal really as being the only place where you might, be protected and you know you shouldn't go out at all because the danger was outside and that was really interesting to me because that is the sort of message that women in particular grow up with that actually the danger is in the streets the danger is outside and your home is a safe space so you should avoid those other spaces and in particular you should avoid walking home on your own at night you should avoid being in the dark on your own you should avoid going to certain places Uh, otherwise you probably will experience some kind of violence and abuse and you will either be partly culpable for doing so or you'll be, as Bianca said, you'll be going to those sort of nightclubs and, and, and licensed venues where it's just expected and it's part of the culture. So it was interesting for me with COVID because um, we know as researchers uh, examining violence and abuse against um, so women and men, that actually the home is the least safe space for those individuals. And in fact, rather than being a safe haven, it often is a, a prison for people who are experiencing violence and abuse. And COVID has essentially um, legitimised, I think, to some extent, this... this kind of notion of control, actually, and, and sort of coerc- coercion over women. It's legitimised it because it's forced them to stay inside. It's told them not to go out. It's um, it's cut resources down. It's advised people not to uh, burden the NHS in the UK. So it's it's given more power to abusers and it's facilitated abuse. So it's not a surprise that it's uh, increased not only in terms of volume, but also in severity. Um, because women have been told to stay indoors and actually their options for leaving and disclosing have been removed because of COVID, which is obviously really concerning, but not surprising, therefore, that we're seeing these increases reported.
2: I think in relation to that um, historical aspect of this construction of, of public versus private space, so at least within Western liberal democracies, um, you know, historically and and, um, and now as well, um, the home has been constructed as um, this sphere where you have complete autonomy and you're free from intervention from the state um, and so traditionally that has meant that violence that's occurred within the home which you know is often that domestic and, and sexual violence in the context of your um, family relationships has been constructed as a, a private issue that doesn't warrant um, state intervention. This historic public and, and private divide um, has really shaped what violence we've seen as being worthy of intervening in uh, and it's been used to justify the lack of state intervention into particularly men's violence against uh, women and children, and we saw that for very for a very long time through things like marital immunity to to rape, um, for example, yeah. um, and you know the the failure of, of governments to uh, regulate and, and intervene in in domestic violence. And I think that does still manifest in um, you know widespread. Attitudes to what we see as being real violence, um, I think there is still a tendency to view um, sexual and domestic violence as being private matters, as being you know, things that are between a, um, a man and his wife, if it's in a heterosexual um, context. Um, so those attitudes really do um, still manifest and uh, inform um, how people understand and respond to violence within the private sphere, even though we have seen dramatic shifts, as uh, Hannah said earlier, thanks to the um, efforts of, of second wave feminists to really put um, violence in the private sphere uh, on on the map, so to speak.
0: Do you think there's a danger that lockdown and COVID will halt that progress or take us backwards at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there, there are very good reasons for people being told to stay indoors from a, a sort of virus perspective. Um, but actually, and and, and, it, and certainly in the UK, there was some backtracking um, when the initial lockdown was announced to say that actually, if you are in an abusive situation, that is one of the exceptions, you know, and you, you are able to leave your home for that reason. But there are now, it's now, well, there are a few things, I guess, that are of concern. First of all, Obviously, as I said, the the opportunities to disclose may have been removed because people aren't leaving the house so much they aren't going out and about. And actually, if you haven't seen your neighbour for a week or two weeks under normal circumstances, you might wonder if they're okay, and you might sort of want to check. Whereas it was quite normal not to see people now for extended periods of time. And so a lot can be happening people just will not be aware of and there are limited opportunities to intervene because as it stands at the moment again in the uk if you um, go around to somebody else's house you're breaking the law yeah. <laughs> um, which is which is really concerning um because you know that from a from a public health perspective that might well be the message we want to send but COVID isn't the only danger um, and certainly in the home, it, it's not the, the main danger for people experiencing violence and abuse. Actually, violence and abuse is the main danger for them. And being in that home can often be very unsafe. Um, so the limited options to, um, to to disclose, there are limited opportunities for people to identify that you might be experiencing abuse. But there's also this kind of like um, this legislative creep, I guess, into the private home is also potentially of concern longer term, because as um, Bianca said, it's been historically constructed as a private space where the state won't intervene. And actually what you do in your own home is your business. And we saw that as being negative historically because it didn't offer the protection for traditionally women when they would um, be experiencing domestic violence and would seek to report it. So the police would say it's just a domestic, we don't intervene in private matters and so on and so forth. And although there's been significant shifts away from that now, I think the current kind of COVID pandemic effects may well be that actually there is a, 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 a move back towards that because we have seen the state intervene. We have seen them kind of say what we can and can't do in our own houses. And my concern is that this will have been used as a tool by perpetrators to um, extend that, that, that level of control and abuse. Some women may never get back out of the house um and i don't know whether there will be the same i hope there will be but i don't know whether there will be the same concern when we come out of covid about um about what has been happening for those people who are experiencing violence and abuse it may well be that we do return to it but i think my concern is that there's been this kind of shift now where the state has intervened to such an extent that it's it dictates what can and can't happen in our home, but it's been done in a way that actually, I think, will facilitate abuse further. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's potentially quite dangerous, isn't it? Um, we, the issue also addresses um, the impact of lockdown on people who provide support services to people experiencing violence, and they're having to bring their work into their own personal spaces. So how can practitioners manage this and mitigate the negative effects?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really good question and it's a really difficult one to answer. So yeah. the work that was done by um, by Claire Gundy and her colleagues really showed that um, for the practitioners that they spoke to, um, the time that they had traveling to and from work was a really important transition period for them uh, in terms of, I guess, kind of moving out of their work selves and um, creating sort of... A Physical and um, you know metaphorical distance between themselves and, and their work lives, so they could really separate the very challenging and you know traumatic work that they were doing um, in their workspace, and then by the time they got home, they were in you know another kind of mode or another um, you know facet of their identity that wasn't about you know, supporting people um, experiencing trauma. Um, so, of course, with COVID, um, practitioners and support workers are now doing that work um, from their home. Uh, and it's really taken away that important space and time um, to decompress and to transition in and out of, of work mode in terms of how people can cope with that, I think is um yeah, really, really difficult. And it really depends on the resources that different practitioners have available to them. So, you know, I think for someone who might be working at home, if you don't have an office space, if you're working from your kitchen table you know, you've got your kids sitting next to you um, doing their schoolwork from home, um, it's almost impossible to do that type of, you know, separation. Um, yeah, work or to have that time for a transition um you know if you're someone who has the um the privilege to have say a private home office um you know it might be possible to at least create some segregated space within mm-hmm. your home so there's still some sense of, of disconnect um or the ability to shut off from from work mm-hmm. self um it might or you know, things like creating um, other routines. So perhaps you don't have that travel time to and from work, but maybe you're able to go for a walk around the block or to do something else symbolic um, to help signify that you're either going into work mode or, or coming out of, of work mode. But yeah, I do think it's a, a really significant challenge. Um, and we've certainly seen some research coming out of Australia with um, domestic violence practitioners suggesting that it, it is quite negatively um, impacted impacting on, um, people providing that, that type of support.
0: Yeah. It's so difficult, isn't it? Um, so Going back to what we were talking about in the introduction, I want to think more about gender-based violence in public spaces. I think Debacker's article in the issue considers different types of violence and harassment um, and how much isn't physical but is experienced uh, as social control. And the article on women's experience of policing in protest spacing also shows that the dynamics of specific spaces facilitate gendered violence. Can you explain the mechanisms of this and why gender-based violence happens in these particular spaces? So I think um,
2: there's a few different things going on um, in in each of these articles. So I think in the the Monk um, article, which I really love, I know that we can't have favourite articles in our special issue, but um, (laughs) it's definitely a a favourite. So the work that they have done with women in protest space, I think, highlights a few of the points that we made earlier. So firstly, how the actual... um, physical or material features of a space can be used um, to facilitate or create opportunities for particular types of violence, but also how that um, social and cultural production of space and and of gender within particular spaces can be used to um, facilitate or excuse um, particular forms of violence. Um, so they looked at a, a protest space in the UK where there were protesters um, kind of camping on, on site. Um, it was quite a, a narrow space where the police were able to use that to physically force um, protesters away from, from the protest site. Um, but they also suggest that the women in these spaces were produced as being out of place and as being kind of deviant women, right, because, you know, good um good women in air quotes are, at home in the domestic space, they're not being um, disruptive and challenging um, and so forth. So the fact that these women were in these protest spaces kind of marked them as, um, as being transgressive um, in some way um, and that that therefore justified the use of you know, disciplinary action and, and violence against them because they were kind of out of line um, with what we would expect of you know, kind of normative femininity. Uh, and the police used that to justify the use of both um, physical and, and sexual violence and harassment against um, these women in protest sites uh, as a form of, of disciplinary action. Um, I think in the um, street harassment article, we see some quite different mechanisms of, of social control um, happening. So for the young uh, Muslim women um, that Debeka spoke to in, um, in Brussels, um, firstly, a lot of them were engaging extensively in what we might call um, safety work or precautionary routines. So, even without having necessarily experienced um, overt or you know more stereotypically serious forms of, of sexual and gender-based violence, um, these young women were. Um, doing things to manage their sense of safety in public space. So limiting where they go or what times they they go out, you know, making sure they were with friends as opposed to being alone. And I think that's really an an embodiment of some of the messaging that uh, women receive from a very young age that Hannah mentioned earlier. So, you know, we're taught that we're responsible for our safety, particularly in, in public spaces. If something happens to us, it's it's our own fault. So we're really responsabilized for our own safety. Uh, and one of the ways that that manifests is through the use of these precautionary strategies. Um, The other really interesting thing that I think comes through in in that article is the collapsing of public and private space. So um, I think the experiences of some of these young women really challenge that binary distinction that we tend to have between public and and private space. So actually for a lot of the young women um, that DeBaca spoke to, um, it wasn't so much a question of whether they were in the home or out on the street. there was actually a much more relational aspect um, that was governing their behavior so um, there were often questions around who were the men that they were with in public spaces so or, or sorry public or private spaces so if they were in the company of men who they would potentially um, marry or, you know, be seen as a, a romantic interest, then whatever they did with those men was considered to be a public matter, regardless of the actual space it happened in. Whereas if these young women were with, say, their, their brothers or male family members, um, that was considered a much more private um, interaction, again, regardless of whether that was in so-called um, public or, or private um, space.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you. I wonder if this collapsing of public and private space kind of leads into my next question. The article by Bridget Harris and Laura Vittis focuses on digital technologies and what is digital violence and what role do digital spaces play in extending and exacerbating gender based violence?
1: Digital violence or digital platforms um, as a, a as a way of perpetrating and experiencing vi- uh, violence, gender-based violence, is um, of increasing interest. I think globally, so we're seeing a lot of research come out now um, that really documents the way in which technology has enabled abuse to be perpetrated in similar and different ways um and as you've said the one of the kind of interesting things um about technology is that it does transcend both both private and public spheres so it isn't located in any one particular space in fact it can be used across all spaces um and um the, the issue with that really is that there is traditionally we've kind of built our understandings of abuse around space, despite the fact we've not actually centralised space in those discussions. But we've really developed our understandings of how they occur, but importantly, how to intervene based on the spaces in which they happen. Um, so, for example, if it's in the home, you know, we've designed kind of interventions so that uh, women can um, report abuse, they can um, leave um, homes and go to safe, safe spaces like refuges, although, um, you know, there was some interesting work around that, those as well in terms of whether or not they do offer those safe spaces. But, you know, we have kind of designed our understandings and our responses on, on the private sphere, um, separate to the public sphere, where we've told women generally to avoid spaces um, or take responsibility for their safety in those spaces. But we have had lots of work and campaigns around kind of trying to make some spaces safer for women as well. The problem with technology is that it's much harder to develop any kind of concrete response because it doesn't occur in a, in a private or public space that lends itself to those types of interventions particularly well, um, and in fact, you know, whether it's abuse being perpetrated on social media or whether it's technology being used to track women uh, where previously the abuse might only have happened in the home. It now actually can can go outside of the home because the abuser is able to track where they are. It sort of manages to creep into every aspect um, and has created really a new space, I guess, that cuts across what have been traditionally seen as two kind of distinctive spheres.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the other really key thing that comes through in um, Laura and Bridget's contribution um, is, firstly, that what happens online needs to be understood as part of the continuum of sexual and gender-based violence. So, you know, we can't understand um, digital or virtual spaces as somehow separate or totally disconnected from, um, you know, real life or um yeah, meat space as it's, it's sometimes um, referred to. Um, so all of those forms of, of violence are interconnected um, and interrelate um, to one another. Um, the other really key thing, um, particularly for forms of, of sexual and gender-based violence that only occur on um, digital and, and virtual platforms is that there's really good evidence now to suggest that um, virtual violence or virtual forms of, of abuse are just as harmful as uh, things that happen in uh, real life or physical manifestations of of violence. Um, So we see the same types of embodied harms and and impacts um, for something that's happened in in virtual space. Um, So it's really important that we're taking technology um, facilitated violence seriously and not dismissing it as somehow less less serious because it hasn't involved uh, face-to-face or real life physical contact. even though uh, technology facilitated violence is interconnected with um, other forms of of violence in in physical spaces, uh, we do also need to look at the unique ways that digital spaces can manifest violence. Um, So for example, by looking at the affordances of um, platforms and how they might give rise to particular um, types of of violence. Um, So looking at something like Twitter for example, Example where um, the ability to contact people that you don't know is built into the the platform. Um, The ability to have hundreds, if not thousands, of people piling on um, with abuse is is built into the platform. Um, So we do need to be asking questions about the affordances and the architecture of of these sites and um, not just assuming that digital violence and abuse is um, somehow inevitable, it's actually enabled um, and made possible through some of these design features. Um, The other thing I think is really important and hopefully a slightly more positive note um, is that these digital spaces have also been harnessed as sites of resistance and sites of of online justice. So survivors have been able to use often some of those same um, features that are problematic in other ways to do things like speak out about their experiences, to disclose, to name and shame perpetrators, you know, to engage in communities that are challenging mis- misperceptions and um, cultural norms that promote um, sexual violence. So these can also be really important um, spaces for manifesting resistance, um, you know for giving voice to survivors about their experiences for acting as a, a type of informal informal justice um, so i do think it's yeah essential that we're re- recognizing um the the possibilities that are opened up through digital and virtual spaces um while also acknowledging that they're clearly sites of of harm and violence as well
0: absolutely moving on to another subject that's covered in the issue and we mentioned cultural stereotypes a bit earlier the article on gender neutral toilets is an interesting exploration of how gender tropes play into the way in which we perceive risk Samantha Walker's article on honor-based violence also shows that culturalized narratives mean that service providers often fail to give people the support they need. So my question is, is the way we use stereotypes and language damaging because it means we avoid addressing the underlying social structures that enable gender-based violence in specific spaces?
1: Yeah, so... um i will just pick up on um, Samantha Walker's article in relation to that point. So um, yeah what's great about um Walker's article is that um she she does what we said was required really early on in the podcast where we talked about the need for an and, and Bianca talks about the need for an intersectional analysis on, on this, because um, yes, the focus is on gender, but actually gender is not the master status. Um, and actually, you know, it's about the intersections of different types of inequalities um, and, and kind of structural inequalities, as well as individual that um, that are important in our understanding of violence and abuse. And, um, Walker's article really centralises that point. Um, So um, she makes a really interesting distinction. So we've talked about the differences between public and private space in terms of how we've traditionally understood and approached violence and abuse. But actually, um, when we talk about public spaces, there is a further distinction that can be made between the rural and the urban. Um, So the urban has been traditionally viewed as a space where violence is likely to occur, uh, whereas rural spaces have been viewed as traditionally safe, and there is a racial undertone to that, um, a racist undertone to that, because urban spaces, if we go back to sort of the Chicago School um, theories of, of crime, um, those urban spaces are where we see high levels of um, transition, we see um, lots of socio-economic social de- um, deprivation in some of these kind of um, inner uh, urban areas. Um, and violence has been stereotyped has been an issue associated with certain groups so particularly um, those who are transient so uh, immigrants um, those that um, have uh, kind of temporary living uh, or housing situations and um, those from kind of lower socioeconomic background students and so on and the further away you get from those city centers and the mer- more rural you get the, the more white those areas are and uh, ergo more safe so that's been the traditional sort of position of, of, of spaces Within um, urban and rural areas, and what um, Walker does is um, draws attention to the fact that those white and therefore presumed safe rural spaces mean that when um, honor-based violence occurs or violence against people from um, uh, sort of uh, uh, minority ethnic uh, communities, there is a um, there is a, an additional problem in terms of how we understand it because. We see those spaces as safe because they are white, and therefore the um, inbuilt understanding is that honour-based violence in those areas is an imported cultural practice. It's not um, violence and abuse as we might understand it if it was located elsewhere. It's actually it's about it's 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 attached to the identity of those individuals. So it's an individualised problem, and it's linked very much to their. their kind of race and ethnicity Um, and so that unfortunately damages the way in which we respond to it because um, those kind of uh, misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the causes of honour-based violence mean that um, the support available is often quite limited and um, the survivors of that are having to negotiate not only uh, the issues of violence and abuse that they experience but also the sort of inbuilt racism um, in terms of our understanding and, and the available responses.
0: So how does that also um, impact on how we perceive risks using the gender-neutral toilets as an example?
2: Yeah, so I think we're seeing stereotypes come, come into play in some really um, damaging ways in the dominant discourse around gender-neutral toilets. Um, so firstly, we see um, in the analysis that um, Coliver and, and Coyle um undertook that uh, women and children were being reproduced as inherently vulnerable and weak and in need of protection Um, and that it was, you know, cisgender men who were there to to defend and and protect uh, women and and children. Um, So we see the reproduction of these um, very narrow and limiting ideas about gender that actually underpin um, gender-based violence occurring um, in, in the first place. Um, So I think that's um, particularly um, problematic. We also see the reproduction of this idea that men are inherently dangerous and um, unstoppable or, you know, almost insatiable um, sexual offenders. And again, that's incredibly problematic, um, particularly from a prevention point of view, because if, if men are just inherently violent, then what can we actually do to, to stop their violence? So it's really deflecting attention again from those structural, social, and, and cultural um, drivers of gender-based violence. And instead, it's saying that's just the way men are, and, and there's nothing that we can we can do about it. I think the other thing that's that's really quite concerning about some of this dominant discourse around gender neutral toilets is that it's really deflects attention away from the extent to which um, transgender people and particularly transgender women disproportionately experience um, sexual violence, um, harassment and and physical violence in both public and and private and in between um, spaces. So a lot of the dominant responses are, are reproducing very transphobic notions of Um, trans women are really just men dressed in women's clothing and sorry to repeat such an uh, offensive trope um, but I do think it's important to be explicit about what what we're talking about Um, so yeah we see these types of ideas that they're you know really um, predators and inherently dangerous uh, in and of themselves because they're actually men Um, and As I said, that really draws attention away from the extent of of violence that transgender people um, face in, in their daily lives. Uh, I think it also deflects attention from the ways in which we might work towards solutions that um, support and improve the safety of both cisgender and transgender women um, and children. Um, So these debates really pit um, transgender and cisgender women um, in opposition to one another as if our needs are somehow um, inherently oppositional. Um, Whereas I think um, there's actually quite a lot of similarity. I wouldn't suggest that our needs are Exactly the same, but you know, certainly in in this type of situation, we're actually all asking to be able to safely use and access bathrooms in public spaces. Um, you know, we're talking about the freedom to exist um, without facing violence, particularly from from men. Um, so I really see there as being a lot of coherence between um, the needs of, of both cisgender and transgender women. So I find, um, you know, these discourses that are, are creating division and opposition to be very, very damaging and, and destructive.
1: Yeah, nuclear attacks taken back like 30, 40 years really, in a lot of ways because this idea that men are inherently violent um it's, it's not only um wrong because we know from now decades of research that um this isn't a, a problem um that is inherent to to men um but also it it basically gives them like a get out clause. you know it's sort of like oh well i can't help it because that's what i am that's what's what the way men are yeah know. And we've, we've worked so hard to move away from this idea that, you know, it used to be kind of the the biological understandings of um, sexual violence in particular, with that it was just a, um, an ordinary and normal and expected response that men would, of course, commit sexual offences and they shouldn't be seen as offences. They should be seen as um, legitimate exercising of their rights because, you know, men can't help themselves if if they see an attractive woman, they have to have sex with them, whether that woman wants it or not and it sort of harks back a little bit to that I know it's not quite as extreme but if we allow those stereotypes to be reproduced then we are returning somewhat to that way of thinking that we've worked so hard to you know to get away from
0: it's worrying isn't it that there seem there seemed to be these moments where we are going backwards a bit at the moment
2: I think as well we saw very similar arguments being used against particularly um, gay men, um, you know, in um, the earlier sort of gay liberation period, so the idea that gay men are, are pedophiles or sex offenders or sexually dangerous in some ways. So we've actually seen very similar narratives used to, to other people who are a minority in some way or, you know, groups who are um, perhaps challenging the heteronormative um, patriarchal status quo. Um, So we need to be able to recognise and call out those types of narratives um, for what they are.
0: So, I mean, there's clearly need for massive progress still. And the issue also looks at space as potentially transformative. The article from Maggie Bridge on how refuges can be seen as a space where feminist work can take place. So with this as an example, how can women reclaim space to combat gender-based violence?
1: I mean, yeah, I think um, Bianca's already touched on this a little bit anyway, about how some spaces, you know, we're, I guess the focus of the article is, uh, of the article, sorry, the special issue is is negative in some ways, in that we are documenting the way in which space um, can, um, can facilitate, can uh, condone, um, can produce kind of cultures of, of violence and abuse. But actually, there are opportunities in lots of spaces as well to um, to resist that and to reclaim them. And we've seen that in the streets. Um, we've seen lots of kind of movements to reclaim back spaces um, over recent years. But but what um, the, the special issue, I think, is, is doing is offering uh, new ways or new spaces that perhaps haven't been viewed as being opportunities. I mean, so refuges is a good example. It's Traditionally, they have been seen as sort of space, but, uh, safe but um, private spaces for women to escape violence and abuse, but not necessarily as spaces where. Um, this kind of more powerful feminist work might be done, even though it was happening, we've just not kind of considered the way in which that space offers an opportunity to do that type of work.
2: I think there's some really exciting examples of, um, you know, feminist activism working to to transform and to challenge like the dominant construction of of different spaces, particularly through um, online and and digital spaces. So one of my um, favourite examples is the Cat Calls of London and Cat Calls of New York City accounts. So if you're not familiar with them, they're um, activist groups. I think New York was the original one and it's it's spread internationally um, and they document people's experiences of street harassment um, through their Instagram accounts, but they also go out and do chalk writing of um, uh, experiences that people have have sent into them, um, so they might quote what a, a perpetrator has said, and they'll also take photos of that and, and post it on on their Instagram account. Um, I think it's a really great example of um, one using the online space as a site of um, of resistance, as a site of consciousness raising, of you know um, bringing people who've experienced street harassment together, so they can see that they're not alone in their experience, and actually this is a, a systematic um, thing that's, you know, not just about, about them. Um, But through their things like their talk writing, they're also actively disrupting public spaces and drawing attention um, to a form of of, of violence and abuse that is often incredibly hidden and dismissed as as being quite trivial. Um, So yeah, for me, I think that's a a great example of of a way that um, people can work to transform and to challenge um, the dominant construction of of public spaces in, in that example. Um, I think the, the other thing that we do need to be mindful of when we're thinking about the potential of, you know, feminist spaces um, to be transformative is, you know, who are they transformative for? And I think this is something that Maggie raises in, in her piece that, you know, often refuge um, spaces, for example, um, haven't been inclusive of, of BAME communities um, in Australia. We would see similar issues with um, our Indigenous Uh, women who have been quite actively excluded from from feminist um, efforts. Um, We see very similar patterns happening with some of these online um, and digital activist efforts, even though a lot of them are working to be uh, much more intersectional in their approach. There is still evidence that they're very kind of white, cis, middle class women um, dominated so I think as feminists, we also need to be asking ourselves some really difficult and uncomfortable questions about challenging and dismantling our own um, privileges, particularly if we're, you know, white, middle-class, cisgender uh, women, and asking some really difficult questions about um you know, our own role in, in feminist activism, how we might create space um, for, for others, um, how our own behaviours and actions might have, you know, contributed towards um, the oppression of, of other people, um, even if it, that was, was unintended, um, because that is a real barrier to um, fem- feminist spaces being truly um, transformative ones.
1: Yeah, it comes back to that intersectionality again, doesn't it, which is, yeah. you know, something that, um, is a key theme throughout the the special issue really that we cannot look at any of these issues in isolation um you know we must make the links between spaces and between um, identities and between inequalities in order to really understand and that includes um being critical of of other spaces but also our own so for, it's clear that there's some there's
0: the issue shows I think that there's a cultural shift that's happening and in progress and going back and forward in some ways. But for there really needs to be policy backup to this as well. So my final question is around the article on legislation on gender based violence and in Turkey they've called for improved monitoring and an independent monitoring system. So to finish off, what key policy recommendations would you make that would help eliminate? or start to eliminate gender-based violence?
2: God, I mean, there's so much that needs to be done. Um, I mean, personally, I would like to see a policy focus on prevention and on generating that widespread cultural and social change um, because that's what's driving the issue. I mean, how we actually achieve that is a, another question. I mean, I think there's a starting point. you are know, having compulsory um, sex and relationship or sexual ethics um, education in schools um, is absolutely fundamental. I believe the UK, you've actually introduced that now. Is that correct? Um, It's still very patchwork um, here in Australia in terms of whether you receive that education um, or not. Um, So that's one really key thing that I would like to see um god Hannah, do you want to
1: keep so in with anything guess, it's so difficult isn't it because um and i think particularly in the current climate um uh, you know and we've seen in um in in the uk but also other places like the us they have they, we feel like we've gone back several steps actually um in terms of our broader policies um and you know we've become quite sort of hostile uh, a lot of the important work that i've has been done, it feels like we've taken several steps back in terms of women's um, rights, but also the rights of other um, communities, particularly minority communities. So it feels like there's so much work to be done just to catch up actually on where we we thought we were heading. But in the UK, I would say one of the the outstanding um, policy ratifications that needs to happen is the Istanbul Convention. Um, You know, what we need is to see is unity. Um, You know, these are not individual problems affecting only individual countries. And I think that, you know, although um, the article um, uh, on um, monitoring of legislation in Turkey is obviously focusing on the context of Turkey, these are not issues that are only experienced. And I think there is a tendency to see, like for example, by reading the article, that that you'll be focused on Turkey and that perhaps there's a, a tendency to other those countries as well, and think that they, that we are doing so much of a better job than they are or that, but actually, we see the same sorts of issues occurring across these different um, geographical uh, locations. Uh, They might manifest in slightly different ways, but that's why we need a unified response, one that is flexible, so that that different kind of cultural um, sensitivities are accounted for. But what was great about the Istanbul Convention is that it set out that agenda that that all kind of members should be um, committing to. And whilst we have done it, we've given it some lip service in the UK, we've failed to actually ratify and embed it. Um, and I think that resistance speaks about bigger problems, actually, that, um, you know, are, are not um, not been spoken about. We we sort of we say, oh, well, we need to improve this area. We need to improve that area. But actually, I think we need to take a long, hard look about why we are resisting the ratification of such an important Um, piece of work which would hold us to account and I think that's part of the issue it's it's holding countries states governments to account with their policy decisions or emissions actually is is the case with us
0: that's a really important note to finish on so so much covered here Um, you can read more in the special issue of the journal of gender-based violence which is called space place and gender-based violence Um, Find out more on the Policy Press website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.